Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me snicking along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And today is the best day, because it's of course an X-Men X-Wednesday, but it's an entirely immortal X-Men X-Wednesday. This incredible book was so amazing, I couldn't talk about it without kicking this episode off with somebody who I have been so eager to get to this title with. So with me this morning to start things off is Josh. Hello, good morning. Josh, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and at asleepatthewheel.com. And from now until November 8th, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate here in Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. Josh, you've been on this show for like 150 episodes or so as a span at this point. So about half the show's lifespan, right? And you came in just as the books were picking back up right after the pandemic, and I feel feel like we have been through a war at this point from like, you know, 10 of swords to here. And it has been so exciting and engaging to see these stories play out with you. And we somehow didn't get to talk about the kind of biggest things that have happened in the X-Men in the last couple of months and, you know, sparingly here and there. But how did you feel about where Inferno, X-Deaths and X-Lives left us for this playing board? I love Hickman. Every Hickman is an enjoyable experience. It did not bring want to say do what I wanted it to do because it doesn't have to do what I wanted it to do but it just didn't ring true enough for me I felt that you know after stringing us along and holding off on giving us any real Moira content for so long that they pushed and accelerated the whole story with a really rapid <sighs> villain turn trying to set her up to be like the major big bad of the X-verse which was then further doubled down on in X-Deaths and it all felt a little rushed and untrue even though all the pieces were there like that was kind of one of the sadder things was like there were all these little pieces about the cancer that weren't really well explained and and the way it was delivered and is she gonna die and well did she have cancer before her powers were revoked now we're supposed to believe that like for a couple thousand years she was relentlessly working to save mutant kind but all along harboring a secret racist hatred towards mutants and and i felt like really talking about and examining it afterwards like the pieces were all there. It could have been such a stronger story if her cancer came up at the end of Inferno and that's what threatened to end the entire universe and the Quiet Council had to vote to depower her and turn on her and that betrayal. Like all the pieces were there, but it just kind of didn't come out right for me. Nowhere near as strong as a setup that we got in Hawkspock. And I really want to back you up on this because I felt very much the same way and it's something that has come up in a number of discussions. I've heard people say say that they feel, as you and I feel, that the reveal was such that she's always been working toward this kind of evil secret hatred somewhere in her heart. And other people are like, oh no, I read it as when Charles and Eric started tracking her, she just flipped. And I'm like, I think either one is a dissatisfying approach to what was presented as a carefully constructed examination of, you know, Moira was turned into the fundamental underlying representation of the dream. Mm -hmm. Moira was the dream 
dream personified. Yeah. And she was that the dream couldn't die. And if what you're telling me is that the dream was always infected with a nightmare, then you need to root that out and not just keep talking about it. But the thing, and the thing is, is that it was set up so perfect because the nightmare being her fear of destiny, her fear of mystique and destiny because of how brutally they murdered and traumatized her early on in, I believe it was her third life. Yeah. And that that would create her one blind spot, her one blind spot that prevented her from knowing she had cancer developing because she refused to allow precogs on the island because she refused to allow them to get ahead of potentially fatal problems like that because she was terrified of destiny could have been the one fatal flaw in undoing. And it was all right there because we still don't know why like the cancer story went nowhere. Like it was just thrown in there. And it feels almost dissatisfying because real people have real cancer. And to make it this plot point, to me, both trivializes, especially because they juxtaposed it with she's my, my recent dead. But like, you can't bring up Jane Foster, whose cancer was never the point, and have Moira have cancer and it be the point. And whose cancer was handled so delicately and true with yes. her having to sacrifice and trade off the beneficial effect effects of her chemo in order to be a hero like yes. that she would suffer for the chemo as much as she could even knowing that like eventually if she had to power up in Thor it was going to heal her of the radiation it was handled so well and then here this read like an 80s kind of treat take on it like a pre WebMD world where like ah hand waving cancer one moment she's coughing up blood and can't stand and the next she's running for miles at top speed to evade mercy one of the side effects was it makes it very hard to skin your former lovers. So I was surprised that she was able to do some of those things. She's strong enough to take down a fully powered mutant, an X-Men. And she's a doctor and a geneticist and a real twisted one at that. So if somebody knows how to like skin a human. I didn't know she was weird. also a skilled taxidermist. Well, at some point she probably just said that's a skill I need. We had a rain. So uh, <laughs> we had to yeah. talk about that, how brutal and devastating it would have been if it had been rain instead of Sean. Oh, for sure. Oh, I, you know, I even wonder if that might have been in an early draft, but how unforgivable that might have made things. Mm -hmm. But I think with that understand and a realization that I just had for the first time ever is that X lives was all about saving Charles and X death was all about killing Moira, right? Mm. So the fact that Magneto wasn't really in either was glaring and awkward. How can you not have this character who represents this fundamental balance in their energy appear especially you know with no sinister as well we just had a whole mini series that had nothing to do with him called trial of magneto yeah a thousand percent and i wonder if some of it is keeping the board clear for ewing who is you know a master of storytelling and efficacy and of understanding how to create a character perspective worth pursuing i mean he's such a so master of it that's the feeling i got after reading this issue today of of immortal is that the magneto clearing is because there are plans in that other book. Now, I'm so glad that you said in this book because it reminds me to get to the book. And so we're here to talk 
talk about Immortal X-Men number one, part one, The Left Hand, written by Kieran Gillen, with art by Lucas Werneck, colors by David Curiel, feces Clayton Cowles on letters, with Tom Muller doing a brand new take on his classic design look, much more saturated, with a lot more undulation in the visual perspective. We saw a lot more clean line with a lot more balanced round. And here we're seeing more curve. I wonder if that represents that times are not quite as cut and dry as they once were for those of you who are super weirdly into the design elements like I am. Hey, what's up? Now, the standard cover is, of course, by Mark Brooks. How did you feel about the Mark Brooks cover? Like, I love the, you know, I was an art history minor. I love the the reference, but uh, I don't know that I think of Mark Brooks as the defining X-Men artist anymore. No, but I love the perspective on the characters. I thought that probably the most balance in terms of like no characters that really kind of stand in a, oh, that's how we're drawing them way. And honestly, I thought it did a really nice thing that all of those mega tapestry pieces that we've gotten along the way in terms of like preluding to the Dawn of X and the Reign of X, that this one actually felt really tied in and explained. Like just by reading this issue, I could go back and look at all of the little secret pieces that were in here and they actually make sense instead of all of the throwaway didn't actually mean anything baby havocs and such of the previous i thought that in terms of tying into this specific issue as well it was really well done and it's for me so many places about the subtle iconography and how much they clearly refuse to point to it the marvel girl and cyclops masks on the floor in front of the table magneto's helmet where his seat would most likely be the phoenix on the chair that has a planet with a streak of energy coming toward it through the portal leading into space. The visualization of this sort of frightening parallel between Emma and Sinister, where I really do think they are primed to be the two big forces going forward for a little while. And look how Xavier sort of shunted off as though he's so concerned with destiny, he doesn't see what's going on in front of him. I'm also fascinated by how many characters are not with who I would think. I don't know how to feel about Storm and Kitty being on opposite sides of things, if that's what I'm to take this as. Well, I think what we see is that those two tables, right, the X-Men table and the Hellfire table, are finding themselves on opposite end here. And some of that is due to, I think, as we clearly see in the book, Sinister's machination. You know, we have also on opposite sides, although not positioned against each other the way, say, Sinister and Emma are, we have Sinister and Destiny, who are now, in a sense, both with foreknowledge, both trying to drive and steer through foreknowledge of events, but what is going to be at times for competing purposes. And there was something so perfect about, so sometimes I feel like when I think about Kieran Gillen and like I've met him, he's such a nice human. I kind of sometimes struggle to imagine how he has such a, an acidic way of looking at things. Just the idea of taking the Charles and Moira scene and perverting it with Sinister and Destiny was one of the most unbelievably clever things I've ever read in a comic book. I'm going to go out there and say, I really hate the fuck you Charles moment. It is for me the worst moment of X Lives X Deaths. Okay. I just, I hate it. I, I hated it so much. And this made it all okay. 
So with this, Kieran Gillen is the only writer in comics today that writes work as densely connected and filled with intricate detail as Hickman. They, they would be the 1A, 1B. I might even give the tip to Kieran Gillen. Both Die and Wicked and Divine were books that I was on from the first issue to the end. And in both of them, I can't tell you how many times I would read an issue and constantly be having to go back and find details and read from two months earlier, seven months earlier, from 23 issues earlier that were so intricately seeded and planted. And oftentimes I would have to rely with Wicked and Divine. He had a blog. He would just give like cheat notes and things to people of like, you know, this is something we were planning since issue 13. Go back and read that. This is something that clearly is supposed to mirror a tie from issue 17. He would help you because it was just too much, especially if you were reading it over the course of seven years, I think it came out. And so that opening scene not only was an amazing opening to begin this era, mirroring as like a dark version of the way we open Powers of Ten, but also then just at the end of this first issue, we go back and it reads completely different in one issue. I don't love what they did to my precious Moira over the course of the end of 2021 and 2022, but I have a feeling I am going to both love and hate far more what Mr. Sinister is going to do to my precious Moira's. The key thing that stole my heart this issue was how cleverly they inserted Mr. Sinister as the narrator of this from the beginning. Something I never loved about Zeb Wells's Hellions the way many other fans did. I liked it very, very much. But something that kept me from like my full wholehearted embrace was that there was always sort of a sense, but you know Sinister's gonna lose in the end. And he kind of did. But by inserting Sinister as narrator, even if he is the antithesis of anything good and anything pro and like he's not a good guy but by making him the narrator this early I could really see see it happening this could be his glory day this is a book that has to be read twice because there are surface level things that he's saying there are things that we just accept like okay Sinister knows this and then there's things that we're like oh okay like Sinister's been playing games or he thinks he knows or he's coy and then we get the whole reveal at the end and it goes back and it changes in ways that if we were just following his body language or reactions would have had a payoff. Like if you read this without the narration, just the dialogue and art, it would have still paid off, but nowhere near as deeply. And this issue should not be read if you have not read the full 20 issue run of Uncanny X-Men volume two that Kieran Gillen did. The very, very underrated and sinister heavy Uncanny X-Men volume two, where Kieran Gillen completely redefined Sinister and made him the sassy, sinister sexual bitch that we all love today. I really love that the one thing that made all of us very flinchy, uncomfortable, you know, we love this reimagining, but this one thing really fucked with it was how violently racist he was. And it made sense for the story Gillen was telling. But we as a people have advanced, comics have advanced, and that they go out of their way as a creative team and an office that on page 13 of the digital, Sinister says, she doesn't like me either. And fair enough, I used to be a huge racist. I surgically excised that bit of my personality. Don't let any prejudice distort how you view the world. It weakens you. All other beings are lesser than me. Why differentiate? so much. He has the perfect voice for Sinister. And now I love a lot of these Quiet Council characters played a huge role in his Uncanny X-Men volume two as well. Storm was there. Sinister was there. Magneto was there. Emma was there. And you know, if you remember, they sat at a round table like this. I want to 
say it was the first issue, but there's a fantastic, like, now classic moment from that series where Storm stands up and she's like, as they're bickering about, you know, who's really good or who isn't, and she's like, raise your hand if you've never been considered the villain at one point or another. And then Scott, don't be too quick. (laughs) Don't be too quick to put your hand up, Scott. If you are going to look on that run, I would also recommend dropping in his sword. It's five issues. It's got a lot of brand. It's got a lot of beast. They'll be unrecognizable to who they are now, vaguely. But it's also a really good idea of how Gillen handles interspatial politics, which I feel like is going to come up a lot with this upcoming crossover, Avengers, X-Men, Eternals. Mm -hmm. I do get the concern. Don't get me wrong. But if the main people writing it are going to be Kieran Gillen and Jason Aaron, two guys who have a great working relationship and know how to navigate the complexities of working two books that are supposed to simultaneously tell the same story together in and out of a massive crossover who have already learned all the lessons from A, V, X they need to. Gillen's not going to make that mistake. Gillen is not coming in to do his first ever major crossover at Marvel and fumble the ball. That's not Kieran Gillen. He's responsible for Immortal X-Men and Eternals. Exactly. And Jordan D. White very clearly said that this was not an X-Men being sucked into a Marvel thing. This is a natural story opportunity coming because the same writer was writing Eternals and X-Men and it was a way for him to do more and move that story forward in a larger scale. And that completely changes the idea of what AXE Judgment... Is it Judgment Day? Judgment... We'll just call it Judgment Axe. Judgment Axe. Of what Judgment Axe is going to be. Because Judgment War... Like, if I say Judgment War, I'm thinking of X-Factor Volume 1, 43 through 50. With the Eternals, in a matter of speaking, because it's the Celestials. So, you know... Arashem! (laughs) Yes, who's on my shelf next to me right now. So, with all of the amazing characters in the Quiet Council and the comings and goings, one of the things that I really thought set this issue apart was the page of cameos that had such a classic Gillen writing phonogram feel to it. And I always think Gillen gets the best trading card style sassiness from characters when the artist draws everybody like a bulging pinup model. And that's really what we got here. The page with Warren, Monet, Gorgon, Vulcan, Brand, and McCoy all talking about why they would be great fits for the council is just one of those things that sets this book apart with a light humor that still ties to continuity. Very much what you were saying Gillen is known for on his private work. And absolutely, these they have the light energy things covering his belly of hubris or whatever the feelings on that, like we, we kind of discussed the uncomfortable associations of that. But now in this PowerPoint is such a great line. I love Warren Monet, Gabriel Abigail. I feel like I can see the script and Gillen saying like, draw them like they know everyone wants to fuck them. Like, like this is a bisexual dream page, which is not an uncommon thing in a Kieran Gillen book. Or X-Men these days. Or X-Men these days. It's just a great time to to be feeling good about everybody. And speaking of feeling good about everybody, there are two really major female presences in this issue that I can't get enough of. Hope being like, hey guys, look, you're all idiots. I'm here to save the day. You're welcome. Is one of my favorite things ever. She has to be convinced to do it. Don't get me wrong. But my other favorite thing ever is Celine being like, me! And they're like, um... And she's like, I can resurrect islands of mutants. And they're like, but... And she's like, not right now. And I love shitty little Celine. She is... She is the best at being the worst. And she's an interesting character 
character in this era with... This kind of feels a little divorced from X-Corp. We've seen her now in Excalibur in the lead up to Ten of Swords. We've seen her in X-Corp and now we've seen her here. And we've kind of gotten like they're barely threaded, but it feels like there is an actual whole character starting to develop. And I mean, if anyone's going to, it's it, it, Gillen. But there's an energy coming out of the faces throughout this book. And in the page where Hope walks in and takes it from Celine. She has this kind of calm naivety that's belied by like a, a strength and goodness. Like there is so much just in the posture, the face, the way that she is drawn there compared to these much more dynamic hand waving major snarls and laughs of Sinisters and Celine's across the other pages. That is so perfect because again, remember if we're talking about hope, the biggest hope story, for better or worse, is with hope as a character, not as a, you know, not nuclear as a plot football. device. Yeah is Avengers versus X-Men is AVX and the best parts of that I kind of think like the lead up the best story that ran with that was Gillen's Uncanny the issues that crossed through there and the way that we saw the characters and actually took time with them those were huge hope moments Emma and Scott moments Colossus another character on the Quiet Council here Colossus and Ileana moment there was big and so bringing hope into this having grown having found her place and also leaning back to the messiah-esque nature of her i mean she was introduced as a messiah and how that's going to make exodus all tingly in the worst places is just great the book has as much bde as the characters in it it is and you know i love what you just said about how it's kind of gillen coming due on a promise with hope because despite being a central focus in the five hopes felt really sidelined this whole time in a way that i've never really appreciated all five members of the five have lost their agency when they became yeah. part of a collective. I feel like a lot of the members of the five would never have been treated that way if they were neurotypical, if they were white, if they were male. I feel like a lot of the members of the five represent characters that have always been kind of discounted in a lot of ways. So the two Bendis characters probably have the most. Like none of the other characters have ever gotten stories. I, I don't want to remember the Elixir yeah, no, stories. We're uh, the just Elixir stories that- didn't happen. We're going to pretend those didn't happen. Josh um, blew up on the bus way before everyone else and then stayed <laughs> blowed up till very recently. Elixir and rain is a thing that never happened. Now in our new Xfinity Lives of Sinister that we can hand wave off and say that it didn't. Speaking of Lives of Sinister, I have this nightmare that Mr. Sinister is growing Moira clones so that he can splice rebirthing your own timeline into people. And that terrifies me. We thought shit was going to hit the fan with chimeras. Chimeras. Moira's is far more frightening than Chimera's. Now, I like to think that Sinister is too much of a narcissist and solopsist to ever give anyone else the god power there, and that the reason why he's going to always be having to re-harvest Moira's is because he has to re-splice her into his DNA every time. I'll take it. I'll absolutely take it. One thing that I am very happy about, and even though the release schedules are definitely not back in concrete, reliable order, I am glad that this issue came out on its own, essentially. I feel 
that this is a comic that can hold its own, that can hold an entire week of schedule the way the Hoxpox books did in ways that X-Lives and X-Deaths were kind of expected to and just couldn't. For the first time in a long time, I feel like since the start of the pandemic, we're talking about something that feels like it's being delivered and read as intended and not having to give caveats about shipping delays or supply chain issues or scheduling shuffles that caused post-production edits or things like that. It has been tiring for a very long time having to have that as part. Since X of Swords, the wildly uneven distribution of the three acts of that story. Like I feel like we've been talking about that every week. I very much agree. It's been hard for me as someone who runs this show at times. It's part of why we expanded our coverage and then, you know, out of nowhere, you find out that these three books are shipping out of order. And so it just, it winds up being so complicated sometimes to follow these books that as grateful as I am for those like Dawn of X and Reign of X trades, they ultimately wound up coming out so many months after the books that they weren't a viable way to read the line in order. So I am so excited about seeing where Immortal X-Men is headed. I feel like the second issue is going to need to be read with the first issue and then discussed with the first issue. And like, it's going to be fantastic. Just like with Wick, Div, and Die. Like, I'm going to have to be going back and pulling old issues out when I'm reading new issues because there's going to be so much I miss. Well, and I can't wait to talk about that issue with you next. But Josh, until then, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and at asleepatthewheel.com. And from now until November 8th, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. Now, for the rest of this episode, we're going to be bringing you coverage of Immortal X-Men number one from a wide variety of diverse voices that make out the amazing X is for Podcast roster. Don't forget, you guys can follow the show over on Twitter at X is for Podcast. And you guys can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico action n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n but and i am so excited to talk about this you guys can also check out my original work in the upcoming young men in love anthology which features incredible writers and artists like cena grace joe glass terry Blass, anthony Oliveira, and more you guys can order that through diamond or pre-order it at your local lcs you definitely want to check that out. it's going to be amazing when it comes out during pride month but until then enjoy these next segments keep those krakoan gateways open those mutant lights lit and we'll see ya Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcasts, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and many fucked up sinister secrets week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me trying to find more humane ways to reset my personal timeline on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Steven, you can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star. And I'm Jake, and you can find me tweeting from Phobos on Twitter at omegasentinel, ohmegasentinel. And I'm Jonah. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience, just like I hope the residents of Krakoa survive Celine resurrecting this giant monster bug gate that's burning everything down. I mean, can you blame her? No, I don't blame her. 
The queen likes to serve. Listen, the destiny of X-Era is upon us, starting with the amazing Immortal X-Men number one. The issue that we have been waiting months for is finally here. And right off the bat, did it live up to the hype that you'd been waiting for in this kind of down fallow time where we were only getting the X-Lives and X-Deaths of Wolverine? This was so action-packed. You had so many cool voices. And it's really fun getting, right off the bat, Gillen's Sinister back in the mix because, you know, he's the one who recontextualized Sinister as this kind of devious and dangerous dandy. I've loved how other writers have handled him in the Krakoan era. Like Zeb Wells' Hellions, equally amazing. But there's something about just getting Gillen's voice back on Sinister again that's really, really satisfying. Absolutely. There was so much happening, but it doesn't feel overwhelming, nor does it feel like a moment was wasted. Like, there's a lot of meat to this first issue, and it's a lot being thrown at people. It, it, there, there's so much going on, but I never felt like I was so overwhelmed with information from so many different sides that I couldn't really follow what was going on. I think everything here needed to be here because we really kind of did need this really strong start of like, this is exactly what's happening. This is what's going on. These are the repercussions of the things that we previously talked about and covered in these different titles across last year that because we took a break to cover X-Lives and X-Deaths, that this book giving us all this information to catch us up, I think it was a really good job of putting people in the mindset of like, let's get back into the action. I really, really enjoyed this. I love the perspective from Sinister. He is a absolutely terrible person, and I love him so much, purely as a villain. This kind of comes off as like the start of his downfall. So I am looking forward to seeing that, but I think I'm going to miss him in these books, to be quite honest with you. I have to tell you, I was so excited for the art, and it just blew me away. Yeah, Lucas Warnack does incredible art. I tweeted something just about like the queerness of this issue mm. and I think that he is a really important standard bearer for that. He knows how to serve the kind of looks that queer readers are just going to go insane for. Especially Celine's look. Like it is yes. iconographic. It will be remembered for years to come. And given the like really petty nasty behavior <laughs> we get from her, it is such a perfect moment of like this bitch walked in dressed to the nine demanded what she wanted when she didn't get it she burned the whole party down indeed she really did and i'm gonna be honest here i was actually team selena yeah that is actually the perfect start to my next question which was who you voting for hope or selene we got steven for selene oh selene 100 i mean i i get where hope is coming from in saying that like the people want this but this is not a representative government of the people the council they're self-selecting so i don't think that that point stands up to a ton of scrutiny given how they've chosen and council members in the past? The answer is Celine. I understand where Hope is coming from, and yes, she should have more of a say, but I don't think she should be a member of the council. More so, I think she should be the representative of the five, where she gets a vote and say in certain things, similar to how Doug and Krakoa get a vote in mm -hmm. certain things. I think that's more so what Hope should be and represent to the council. More so, the liaison between the two parties and making sure that the five have their needs met and have say in really important matters. But I don't really think Hope needs to have a specific seat on the council. Celine, like quite truly has had her hand in so many different pots that I, I think it's time for her to have a major role like being on the council. Celine has been immortal for a very long time. She knows how to survive. She knows exactly what to do. And it's weird to me that people aren't going
going to her for like certain advice. Yes, I get it. She's vampiric. Yes, I get it. She sucks the energy, blah, blah, blah. But if we're going to allow certain people on the council without any of their questions, whether for ulterior motives or not, who cares? But I just am such a proponent for allowing Celine to have a major role because I feel like as far as bigger ex-villains that are mutants, she really hasn't gotten her fair shake comparative to people like Sinister, Apocalypse, Mystique, where they get these really fascinating stories of how their villainry affects Krakoa and if it's a tangential kind of like symbiosis or if it's more parasitic. And it just feels like she's not getting her fair shake that I'm like, let's give Selena a shot. Actual answer, if I could, I'd say kick Exodus off and put both put both Celine and Hope on the council. Fuck somebody else. I mean, you're totally right in terms of the pragmatism of selecting someone like Celine. You know, she's 10,000 plus years old Thank and you. she's being underutilized. And we got to see a little bit of her, what kind of resource she offers the community in uh, X-Corp. She can look back and see all the mistakes that humanity has made. You know, if this mutant nation is being built to last, then you should be, you know, pulling on someone who knows what it takes to make a civilization last. The complex push and pull of of Krakoa and Krakoan amnesty is we brought in a lot of mutants who are traditionally seen as villains and they're given a role in this new society that we sort of gave them a blank slate but the problem is a writer really has to do a lot of work to take somebody like Celine and say here's how they can be a productive member of society and how we can move past you know resurrecting 16 million mutants to feed off them and attain godhood it's a lot of work and I can understand why a lot of authors chose to kind of only dip their toes in with, as in something like X-Corp or just to kind of stay away from the rehabbing of villains or the re-engaging of villains in this new society where they ought to get their fair shake. Gillen is the perfect person to me to make this attempt with Celine. What he did for Sinister, it made him a lot more fun and accessible and less inscrutable and that has carried on into this, I think he can do the same thing with Celine in such a way that regardless of the attitude that she has or the motivations that she has, we can see her as somebody who we're not constantly waiting for her to take everybody out. We are seeing her as potentially a resource for the mutants of Krakoa. I really hope no one is like, you know what? Sinister has some good ideas. You can say that about a lot of people. You can say that about a lot of different mutants. Yeah. You cannot say that about Sinister. But I think the way that Sinister is being brought into this light in, in the fun way is that I, the way I personally see it is I'm just very excited for when he's going to get decked. Like, I'm just waiting for that moment for somebody to punch him in the face. Like, r- like really sock it to him and everything come crumbling down for him. Yes. And I, I'm waiting for that build up and I'm waiting for that to happen. And if it doesn't happen, that's fine. But I think that's the exciting thing about following Sinister is that he's, I, I don't think he's going to su- succeed, but I'm excited to see how it's going to fail and i'm excited to see how he's going to squirm his way out of it (laughs) and that's what i want for more villains and more characters that have dubious motives like celine whether her motives are always pure or intentional they could be whatever they are but i think she at least deserves that shot i'm with you on that jonah when we talk about rehab work for characters it's not about making everybody a hero but it's about taking the problematic parts of their past whether it's bad writing or odd 
motivations or out of character stuff and just doing the work of like, here's a funny answer to why Sinister is not a Nazi because we can't root for Sinister as a villain if he's also a Nazi. Mm -hmm. But if I just take this moment to do this little joke, we have moved past that and now he's kind of this fun camp villain that we can root for at the very least seeing what's next on his agenda, even if we don't really want him to succeed. Absolutely. You you talk about Sinister's motivations and I think that that's something that's still pretty obscure here. You know, with the Hoxpox retcon, we were shown that his, you know, fervent need to categorize the genetics of all mutants comes from Xavier, comes from Magneto, comes from the the Krakoan project. But it's not clear what his motivation is here now. I mean, besides like power and continuing to experiment on mutant genomes, it seems like he has a master plan, a grand design that he is moving towards. Small scale, it seems like it's Chimera. And what the end goal is, you know, for me, Sinister is probably going to be most interesting if he does not have a cohesive final step. And it's one of those things where he swears that there there's something there, but if you really press him, he doesn't know. He's just trying to ramp up the eugenics to 11 at every turn and gain, you know, full mastery, but full mastery for what purpose? I think if I believe that he works best if he has no idea and eventually has to confront the fact that this is all not going anywhere. Mm. Speaking of things not going anywhere, can we talk about the Moira machine? I had to read the description three times to really understand what was happening because time mechanics always give me a bit of a headache. But like once I understood what he was doing, I was like, oh man, that really connects to the way he uses mutants. I love that whole speech that he made about mutants as resources because we were just talking about like Celine as an underutilized resource. But the Moira machine was so smart and such an interesting twist. Once I got it, I was like, Gillen, you you fucking genius. What a great machine for Sinister to be using. And what a great counterpoint to Destiny because it seems like that's one of the things that is happening here is that Destiny and Sinister are each other's foils in this arc at least. I was so, so stoked to see this. I thought this was just utterly brilliant. It's that gif of RuPaul with the binoculars. I can't <laughs> wait to see what happens because the introduction of there being Moira clones with their mutant gene activated is a ticking time bomb for something horrible and glorious to happen all at the same time. There are so many different things you can do with this, and Sinister knows that. I just have no idea where this is going to be taken. And I didn't think about Sinister as a player because we've been focusing so much on so many different characters and their roles, whether it's Magneto and Charles, Moira herself, whether it's Mystique and Destiny. Those characters have been at the forefront of people's minds regarding Moira's story and her mutantness. But Sinister's, I guess, just been in the background collecting DNA. Sinister's working on his chimeras. There are so many people that you can combine this with. The one that's coming to mind, if you really want to fuck with people, forget me not, where somebody can reset a timeline. Nice. But you have no idea about them, and there's no way to detect them in any way, shape, or form. There are so many different ways we can speculate about this, and that's one of the hallmarks of a really great plot point, is just your mind will spin in so many different ways. When Inferno 4 ended, I remember feeling really cheated out of Moira's mutantness. Through X-Lives and X-Deaths of Wolverine, we got a very interesting arc for Moira. She is a real player. The original Moira is a real player as a villain, but we did kind of lose her as a mutant, and I felt very cheated by that. I really was curious as to how she 
would play out with other mutants, how they would talk about her powers, how they would deal with her experiences. And I think her as a potential ally for Orcus and as an enemy to the X-Men makes a ton of sense. This was such a glorious moment to me because, of course, we have not lost Moira's mutantness. We are now contending with it in ways that I never would have thought about. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a an engine of change for the X-Men, which is what I wanted for that as soon as it was introduced. Before Inferno Moira was the sort of Damocles hanging over Krakoa. And now it's like the sword has been taken down and it's in Sinister's hand. How many council members predate Moira's time loop? Because you've got Sinister and Destiny and Mystique. You had Apocalypse, Selene and Exodus. And for someone like Selene, the whole blip of Moira's life is just a blip. It's it's just a dot on her radar. I wonder if we're going to see it, see that played with it all, this idea that so many mutants existed before that problematic Moira was born and what their kind of thoughts are existing outside the scope of that reality negation power. I mean, what's so great about this first issue is what Gillen has said immediately in the way that he wrote this is that speculation is totally reasonable. That could be really important. We have no idea as of now, and that's what is most exciting. He's leaving all these threads and saying, you you have no idea which one I'm going to pick up, so speculate wildly because anything is possible. What did you guys think about the montage of the other people vying for the seat, and why was Vulcan not one of the worst choices? (laughs) Those bottom three, like you had Angel, Penance, and Gorgon, but not our Gorgon, otherworlded Gorgon, I guess. And then Vulcan, Brand, and Beast. And, and the thing that I thought was interesting about Vulcan, Brand, and Beast is that they're all suspicious to the reader for their own reasons. The Beast is like technically the least suspicious because despite his machinations, his agenda is pretty out in the open. But Brand is a traitor. Vulcan is, I don't know, he's been reprogrammed by some aliens and we don't know what that'll look like. Of those six, it's hard to say who I would have most wanted <laughs> on the council, but Vulcan is a terrible terrible choice. I'm between two in my top, and then for some reason Vulcan lands in my third spot (laughs) as, like, I guess desperate choices out of these six, but I do think that Angel and Monet, I actually think that they would have been uh, fantastic choices. I actually think that one of the two of them should replace Colossus, because I still don't understand why he's there. He's there to be Xavier's inside guy, but no one knows that he's been co-opted by by Russia. Precisely. He's just, okay. (laughs) I love him, don't get me wrong. Wrong, but like like a seat of this importance just seems so out of place for him i, no, don't I think you're totally right though and i think that colossus's presence is supposed to be troubling for a number of reasons for one we already know that he he's been co-opted two i think that we're supposed to think professor x is kind of losing it a little bit like he's yeah. losing his objectivity yeah. for sure like to me that really stood out when he's talking to was it nightcrawler about how he's like oh no legion i'm afraid is too unstable and i asked namor but he said no i'm like are you kidding me Legion's unstable, but you ask Namor, who is historically unstable. I actually love Namor so much, and I I am a little bitter that he's not part of Krakoa because he was one of my favorite parts during the Extinction, you know, mm-hmm. storyline. But yeah, like that was still like a choice to go back to after everything. I'd love to see what happens when he gets kicked off the council because I think that's where we should go with that and what he does. Like, let's get a Professor X book where he's just sad and sullen because he's been kicked out of his own <laughs> country. 
Sorry. Throwback to when in Clermontian X-Men where Charles was hanging out with Lalandra with the Shi'ara Empire and he was sulking and pouting like a big old baby because there were other smart people in the room and he was no longer the smartest man because he wasn't on Earth. He was in space and there were a lot more people who were smarter and better at the job than him and he was mad. <laughs> he got to be best friends with the groundskeeper though. Yes, he did. He learned that, hey, maybe if I'm not the smartest, there are other things I could do. And it was just very funny to see how angry he got at not being listened to. Indeed. It's a very like, oh, I'm not the smartest person in the room, boo-hoo. I'm familiar with that from family dynamics with people. You're talking about me? No, no. <laughs> oh no. my goodness. <laughs> no, I'm talking about like many of the, the baby boomers in my life. No offense, baby boomers, but maybe some offense. How did you guys feel about Magneto leaving the council in the first place? Because I'm like so upset about it. This is like when a politician's like, I'm resigning before they can get into any trouble. This I know! <laughs> this like is exactly what that is. Magneto <laughs> leaving because like, I, I need to retire. I figure my powers and prowess and my abilities can be utilized elsewhere. No, Eric, you're just upset that you got caught and you don't want to deal with the ramifications so you're running away to Mars. Just own it and deal with it. And also, you just resigned. You don't get a vote. It was pretty perfect though. Like, it's such a good pull from what's been happening the last few months. We know we're getting him in another book with characters like Storm, who I think will be excellent foils for him. While I will miss him on the council, and while in-universe there was a lot of eye-rolling for me, I was really enjoying the story elements that it's going to lead to. I would never think that Eric would voluntarily give up a seat like that. I guess in the context of recent events, I could see him being tired. I could see him, like, again, yeah, like you said, not wanting to get caught in it, like a politician, but I was genuinely surprised. I was like, really? Eric? So guys, as we come to the end of our coverage of Immortal X-Men number one, I want to ask you, what was your favorite Red Diamond Immortal Sinister secret? Uh, I need to know who's shacking up with Sinister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that is probably the biggest question I need to have answered. So the Red Diamond secret, I am kind of nervous for Emma, actually. Because Based on of which number one? Four, number four. Well, isn't the White Queen, like, quote, quote, the White Queen is the cuckoos now? That that's, is true. That's very true. Absolutely. Although this could still be referring to her because that's just how she's colloquially known still. Exactly. Yep. So, I mean, I, I definitely took that as Emma, but you did raise a really good question, so. I think number six intrigues me the most, and I hope that we're gonna go back to Genosha and see what's happening there. If we're talking about, is an island nation going to be destroyed? Maybe, but don't worry, it's not ours. I want to see what's been going on at Genosha. I'm really surprised that Krakoa hasn't colonized it and made it a new home, or at least like memorialized it and made it a place where humans can't go. So yeah. it'll be interesting to nice. see. Mm -hmm. For me, it's definitely number five. It's Judgment Day. Let's hope we're not being judged for our spelling choices. It's Judgment, you ruffians. I was really tickled by Exodus referring to ostensibly Jesus as the Nazarene mutant um, because that makes no sense. And I think it was wishful thinking for someone like Exodus who's a mutant supremacist to be like, ah, yes, of course, I was a crusader and the person that I worshipped was clearly also a mutant. Just as a former seminarian, I thought the whole thing was very funny, but I was also like, this is a very bold thing to have a Marvel character say when we don't um, get that close to religious history unless it's like a Nightcrawler arc. It's perfect for Exodus, though. Oh, for sure. And it makes me even more excited to see what's going on in his head if we get an interior issue for him. Yeah. I not only am fascinated to know who will be thrown in the pit, who specifically does Sinister think deserves to get thrown in the pit? <laughs> 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 for 
good question. He says good riddance. So is it someone who the general comic reader audience would be like, yeah, they probably should get thrown in a pit, or is there someone that's going against Sinister that he's just upset and being cranky about? It's going to be like Edie. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting segment of Extra for Podcast, where we talk about mutants, magic, and Marvel week after week. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at DazzlerWayWay on Twitter. That's Dazzler, like in the Age of Apocalypse. Yay, and that makes me Raven, aka Dame Red Thread. Come find me on Twitter and Instagram. Hi everyone, this is Juan Chu, you can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakoa. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And we've got sinister knowing things he shouldn't know we've got hot lesbians from the 20s we've got moira clones and i guess that means we're covering immortal x-men number one and mark brooks on this main cover which i have to say is so beautiful i bought the short box version of it too and it looks even better on that short box so like first off destiny of x is starting like how excited are we for this new era in krakoa it's like I didn't even know where to start, where to end. It was so intricate and like every it's it's the best soap opera you can read. Uh, for me, this issues is where like Destiny kicks off. Especially as as you've all seen, I was very disappointed by X Life and X Deaths. So I'll just ignore that and pretend this is the start of the new era, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. I mean, this is in a lot of ways the real beginning of Destiny of X. X Lives and X Deaths feels like a weird transitional state you know there's no, no other x-men comics going on for it to interact with and it just kind of follows up on inferno so i think you're fair in delineating this as the true beginning of the destiny of x and honestly this is the first time we're really seeing destiny as a, a major player since inferno so i've been i've been really enjoying it i loved this issue i thought it was so good i love reading kieran gillen's mr sinister getting an entire point of view issue to start off his run is kind of like a nice way for gillen to say like hey if you remember my previous x-men run you're really gonna like this one but we're also gonna do some new things with it and it was nice to see all of the weird shit that i still some of the stuff i don't understand what's happening yet like sinister getting poisoned back in 1919 i didn't realize until the end of the episode that he was referring to moira's lives and i slowly it began to dawn on me that like he's probably killed a moira clone already before the beginning of this issue and that just broke my mind because we've spent so much time as a community as like x twitter and just generally x X x-men fandom delineating the 10 lives of Moira and then further delineating 10A and 10B and what some people believe is 10C and then like this issue starts off with like alright I wouldn't worry about any of that now because there's like a bunch of Moira clones and Sinister has already killed one it looks like he may have killed 25 before he absolutely may have killed 25 before. so we're already at the end of the alphabet now yeah <laughs> hey you know what that's a really good point i had forgotten that that is a significant number moira z yeah we are at we are already at 10 z <laughs> we want to go there oh wow well, yeah you know she's just so killable <laughs> 
what, what, one of my favorite parts of this issue, which is like a thing I really like in Kieran Gillen comics is when Kieran Gillen makes me like angry because of how completely bold and like risky he likes to play with the rules of the comics. Like it's happened a number of times in, in Eternals where he'll just do a thing at the beginning of an issue that's like, oh, remember this line that we were afraid to cross, you know, that was there and like a threat and that other comic writers would leave for years. Well, we've crossed it and we've crossed it in a way that is like unchangeable and we're just you're just going to have to get used to it and buckle the fuck up and that moment for me in this issue was when sinister realizes that things are not going the way that he knows that they are supposed to go or the way that he expects them to go and destiny's fucking with him and he runs back to his lab and he's already ready to kill another moira clone and just reset the universe and he literally has to stop and remind himself like no it's been one day it's only been one day it's too soon to do it again and like he was just gonna fucking (laughs) annihilate the universe and start over after one day of fucking up and that to me was already like wow okay we are well beyond writers being terribly afraid of what happens if moira gets killed what happens if moira gets resurrected as a mutant or repowered like will this change everything and it's like no kieran gillen is just like sinister is just making sure things go his way over and over again and you don't need to worry about that anymore we've just we've popped it popped the seal on that i love it it's extremely exciting mm-hmm. Yeah, it really makes me wonder how far into the future he's gone in some of these timelines he's done, because this is... Probably not far. I know, right? Patience. (laughs) Being so impatient, he's probably, like, I I obviously wonder what his end goal is. I wonder if he's going to be working towards the chimeras, like, that were hinted at. So crazy to just think, like, there's so many possibilities. Now I just want a Sinister series where we go through all 26 lives of Sinister. (laughs) Oh, as far as I understand, each issue is going to be focused, like, point of view on a council member. Yep. So there's this theory, I think it's not like a theory, it's sort of confirmed that if you go to to the page with the red diamonds, Mm -hmm. that's like each hint is a future character, right? I had a hard time with these sinister secrets because we read them real quick. You're not talking about the everything secrets, obviously, but the the, Im- the immoral sinister secrets. Yeah, the one that, like the first one is about sinister secret, uh, Mister Sinister, and the second one seems to be about hope. Yeah, I, 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 it's interesting. And the third one seems about destiny, but maybe I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, that definitely seems like mm-hmm. destiny is writing another destiny's diaries. I, yes, that was the one where I read that and I was like, yep, that absolutely is obviously true. What I like most about this issue, and I think what I like most about Kieran Gillen is that he's excellent at writing characters that are old. Yes. Like old as in ancient. Yes. Like centuries old, right? He's so good at that. From and we, which, like, yeah, we've seen it right now in Eternals. We saw it here with everyone in the Quiet Council. And we've also seen it in Wicked and Divine, which if you haven't read it, it's really good. And it's probably Kieran's best work. And yeah, I think like those strengths play really well to to sinister because he has he's had centuries of massing knowledge he has infinite centuries right yes and i think that's gonna pay off really importantly down the line and i just want to throw it out there that sinister is absolutely right that moira is terrible at statistics Why? <laughs> yes yes because you need at least 30 repetitions for a study to be sort of to trend towards a mean and moira's only had 10 so what's up with that right yes moira? but she's had 10 <laughs> lifetimes full of science to 
do different things with, to compile data over. She shouldn't have to repeat 30 lifetimes to get one of them right. But oh, so yeah, far, yeah, she's chosen like, in pretty much every that. lifetime to be an a-hole. So. <laughs> well, I think Moira's limited in this regard. She's limited to being an a-hole? Yes. She's limited to being one person, right? So, yeah. like, necessarily, her sample size is one. Yeah. She can try her thing over and over again, but she's always going to get biased results because she's always going to think that she's tried everything, but she doesn't have any outside perspective. And since they're bringing in and being like, well, I've got a bunch of clones and I can kind of do whatever I want with them. And <laughs> his, his amorality plays into the factor here because Moira is always like, whatever her end goal was, she's not going to do something that endangers her own life and she's not going to do something that fucks up the timeline. And those mm. constraints are suddenly off when it comes to a mad scientist in charge of these bodies. <laughs> yeah, no shit. It's more of a, of a stats joke, apparently. <laughs> I understood, you know, like kind of what you're pointing at that like, yeah, she has to do more repetitions. My whole problem with her is she keeps doing the same repetition. Yep. She really doesn't change much because if she's supposed to be the fulcrum, if she's supposed to be the turning point, she needs to do something other than being a self-hating mutant trying to destroy her own kind. I mean, she did try to change and in once no because she went with apocalypse. That was very different. I mean, she did Magneto like, very different. Yeah, I mean, she yeah. only tried different things, yeah. right? But she I mean, in the end, that. I think she reverted to to her self hated hating version because of the uh, lack of results. Uh, I didn't get what I wanted. <laughs> I'm gonna go back to being an asshole and making everything worse. Why like, you, come would, on. Would you say she fudged the results because she didn't get the ones she wanted? Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe. Something we had brought up earlier about how Kieran Gillen really excels at writing the older characters is something I really wanted to get a little bit more in depth in like this the title being immortal x-men obviously a play on mutants being immortal now but kieran has really focused at least this issue especially on some very ancient mutants like yes. the, the main characters that have been at play besides hope who's like 12 she is got to be in her early 20s god damn hope in real time yeah <laughs> it's like time weird time travel rules <laughs> but yeah <Fine>. so <laughs> The focus characters, obviously, we saw Sinister, who is an extremely long-lived mutant. We've got Destiny, also extremely long-lived. Mystique as well. And then the focus on Selene and Exodus as well, too. Like, we've got some extremely long-lived characters out there. How are you feeling with this focus being on these extremely, almost immortal characters already before we're bringing to the present-day Krakoa? where mutants are now functionally immortal. It didn't really click for me that that is why this is called Immortal X-Men until I read this issue. I, it sounds dumb as hell, and I know that. But, like, I, you know, like, I get it. Like, the mutants are immortal now, but it did not really click for me until literally reading this issue that there are so many near-immortal or already ancient, beyond-time-immemorial mutants on the council that that is actually what the immortal is re referencing. Like, I love that, Wancho, you and Nathan, you brought this up because... Uh, it is really cool, like, focusing on the actually ancient mutants on the council for once. Like, I mean, Selene is not on the council yet. Focusing on Selene, focusing on, like, talking about Apocalypse needing to be replaced, having the point-of-view characters all be, like, all the major players are these people who've been around much longer than Xavier's been alive, or even Magneto has been alive, is so interesting to me, because it shows, it shows that there are different ages of immortals, and between them all, there are those who think of the others as children, even. Like, I'm sure Selene 
Celine thinks of every single one of these members as children. And I'm sure Exodus hmm. sees people like even Sinister as like kind of a baby compared to him. Mm, I don't I don't even give him the credit of thinking of them like babies, honestly. <laughs> Speaking of, I'm not sure, what what do you guys think about him comparing Hope to Jesus? I thought that was really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was extremely funny. I don't care if people are mad about this one. Yeah, I don't care. It's a very funny joke, and it's more importantly, it does not even mean that Jesus was actually a mutant. It just means that Exodus absolutely believes he was. Yeah. And he would. Yeah. That's just, that's just Exodus. Like, he, he's going to go appropriating everyone to be a mutant if it's his goals, right? Right. That dude yeah. fought oh, yeah. the Crusades. Of course he's going to appropriate Jesus for his own new mutant religion. Like that's fucking mm-hmm. in character for that yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. And also when, when he said that the Phoenix is the Holy Spirit, I think that was really oh funny. God. That was really funny. That like, yeah, funny. a bird came down upon you and pretty Oh my God. Yeah. Like, dove on the waters. I love it. All I can think is somebody please spray breast milk in his face. He thinks himself a saint. <laughs> oh. I was like, it's a reference to Saint Bernard. Saint Bernard was this monk or a priest, I can't quite remember. But anyways, he has a dream that the Virgin Mary comes down and sprays breast milk on his face and he awoke to this white substance on his face and thought that it had transubstantiated from his dream and they made him a saint. Man. Between like Bernard and Thecla and Teresa, we've got some horny saints out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is Exodus. This is I have not heard much from Exodus, so I've been like trying to piece together like how much I should like or hate this character. Hate, hate, hate. But anyway, but, yeah, oh yeah, no. I mean, that's kind of I mean, obvious. Hate, but right? when he does that, oh the Nazarene, I'm like, oh my god, you are so up your own ass. This is just oh, make it stop. Just yeah, it solidified a lot of thought processes. <laughs> yeah, I also thought that it was kind of funny when Celine's just, you know what, I can bring mutants back, mm. uh, uh, like in a single day, like uh, as zombies, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I like how she, in line with the Marvel office, is like, there weren't really zombies, not technically. <laughs> I love that, though. I could do that, too. Yeah, they were zombies! <laughs> they were not good! But I think it's very interesting, like, when she is explaining that she could boost the five, mm-hmm. I think that would be really cool to see in, in a future issue. Mm-hmm. Like, bring back a hundred mutants at once, not just one at a time or whatever. I, I would, yeah, you know, but what's the That cost? would be very interesting and, and, like, add to this whole... Like, she's actually making a point, not, not telling a joke. Yeah. yeah, but again, what's the cost? Because we all know that magic costs. Yep. Well, I, yeah, I'm sure there will be a cost, but I want to see it happen. Like in Eternals, yeah. every time an Eternal comes back from the machine, a human dies, right? Mm-hmm. That's the so cost. Crazy. <laughs> which is insane. That like, is so much more crazy than mutants not being able to die anymore. And if the humans ever find out about that one, they're going to be much more mm. upset. Yeah, mm. so um, so what I'm driving it is that Kieran is even now like just setting up the the seats for Judgment Day. I thought that was sort of a maybe I'm looking more into it than I should, but that just reminded me of that issue where Eternals learn how they come back. I, he definitely mentions Judgment Day, if only for Kieran Gillen to make one of his endless jokes about how American English doesn't spell things right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, speaking of Judgment Day, I mean, Celine's trying to go for that. <laughs> it's judgment, you ruffians. I love Kieran being at the helm for this and Eternals for going into Judgment Day because I'm I have some actually really high hopes as to what that event's gonna be. Whereas before, if you told me something was gonna be Avengers versus X Men versus Eternals, I'd have been like, really? 
Yeah, it would be a lot harder for me to accept if it wasn't Karen Gillan. Wernick is so good in this issue. Everybody looks fucking hot. Beautiful. Celine's cape is incredible. Cyclops eyeballs. I want to hear your thoughts. But the cat with the Cyclops visor. Oh my god, I was laughing yeah. so hard at that. Like, not only does Wernick do just an amazing job with the faces and, you the know... Briefs. Oh, my Magneto's briefs in the council. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you. (laughs) That was, uh, that was hot. There's this one panel where, yeah, he's he's arguing with Emma, and and I swear, thank you for drawing what appears to be a bulge in a comic. I really appreciated a lot of the the artwork and the attention to detail in the clothing in this issue was just absolutely gorgeous. Also, the uh, Cyclops is a pussy joke did not escape me and (laughs) had me cat. Yeah, I gotta say, I love that the X Men are about fashion now. Uh, that that element yes. never go away. It's I, I'm, it brings me back to like Mark Silvestri comics. Honestly, I, I know that's maybe not a thing people associate with Mark Silvestri, but I do. I love the fashion. It walks that beautiful line of of something that you would see as a superhero versus something you would see as you know just more of a casual that you could actually do but be super extra while doing it. So I love it. Yeah. And I got to give credit to Curiel, too, because even, I mean, Warnick did a fucking amazing. But if you look at the page where Celine's got the, the spider external gate creature or whatever weird creature <laughs> she resurrected. Centipede. The centipede. Yeah, sure. Centipede. Like, if you look at just, like, the art with those colors. Yeah, the color gradient. So of beautiful. Yeah. Like, like, you can tell Marvel put their best talents on this series right here because they all work together so well. I, there's not a single point of art I could point out and say like oh I don't like that like or oh the coloring was wrong which amazing I don't know maybe this is just my display like my iPad but did anyone else feel that the council scenes were like super bright they're always brighter on digital than when I read them I read them in print and sometimes I've looked at the digital versions and they are extremely brighter and the colors more saturated it is there's a distinct difference for me there is there is I I thought it was a digital issue not a, a coloring issue well I mean I think there's always a issue with the white balance on the council but you know that's me yeah yeah but some displays whatever (laughs) but yeah (laughs) if you get the joke you get the joke (laughs) he got the joke It really did. It's just Monet is there, and she's looking a little lighter than I usually think she should. But I know, right? Fun, I guess. So, what do we think about the selection of candidates to fill the spot on the council? And is there anybody that you would have liked to have see go up for council? Even though if Hope wanted to go up, Hope was going to always win. I would say for me, like I love the selection. You know, I did kind of like hate having Warren and Monet both go up. I was like, girl. <laughs> There's a few characters that I, I really think need to hit the council. Like, I think Danny Moonstar would be great for the council. I think Callisto would be amazing for the council. I would love to see those people at least recognized, but maybe that's just me. So where are you guys with all of that? I think it was very funny that Gorgon is there because isn't Gorgon like a baby now? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he can he can say me, so. Yeah. <laughs> he can also say no, like most babies, like, so he can vote. Like, councils, I think it's very clear how like, everyone feels about Beast and a bigger brand, even without knowing that brand is on Orcus, they're very suspicious of her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the character, I think that I like for me, I think it's gonna be Bobby. Maybe he should have been a candidate. I don't know. Which Bobby? Are you talking about Bobby DeCosta? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds Ah. 
Uh, I, I would have loved to have Danny on the council. I would love to have Celine on the council. I yes. think she's legitimately a good choice. I don't want him on the council, but I want to shout out that Vulcan at least got mentioned. So I know my friend Arn is extremely happy about that. I think there's definitely going to be changes if we see like the Sinister Secrets. Like number 10 says that someone's going to get thrown in the pit, right? It's going to be Sinister. I thought it was Sinister though. Who's yeah. going to be thrown in the pit? <laughs> yeah, it's, gonna be <laughs> it's, it's either going to be Sinister or it's going to be Beast. Yeah, so there's got, definitely going to be an open spot. Yeah. Or more but, than yeah. one after Judgment Day. There's a few people I'd love to get off the council, like Shaw. <laughs> but, like, uh, that'd be a great spot for Celine to replace. I feel like Shaw, and I and I, I say this fully knowing that this is a thing Shaw would hate said about him, but I feel like Shaw has been completely emasculated by his treatment in mm-hmm. Rogers, and good for him. I love it. I love it. Um, like, yeah. like, Celine would have honestly been a good pick until she pulled this bullshit. Like, if that's, if you have such a quick reaction to being possibly shot down, like, nah, you don't need to be on the council then, because that I can't trust that your judgment would be a balanced one. It would just be a selfish one, which, I mean, more than half the council is already that kind of asshole so no i mean thanks. that is why i want her on the council i want an insane another baller outfits look as hot as hers do in this issue like beautiful beautiful design beautiful coloring oh look, mm. girl boss gaslight gatekeep whatever but honestly there are too many insane powerful men on this council let's put an insane powerful woman on yes. the council oh, jesus no <laughs> beautifully done loved it this is the soap opera i was looking for yeah, I just hope uh, this is the first step into fixing Moira after Ben Percy ruined her forever. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a lot of hope for that one show, but I want it for you. I want it for the Nathan who used to read comics in the old Excalibur. I mean, like, I love Moira. She's so great that Nathan's really not liking this Moira. But, you know, it's been an interesting ride. I, ooh. Maybe Karen Gillen will zord her. Who knows? Oh, maybe. Maybe one of her clones will, will come back and then she'll be the Moira. <laughs> yeah. She'll be the point where we all knew and loved. I'm interested in wondering where Destiny, how Destiny is going to factor into all of this because Destiny seems to be throwing a little bit of a monkey wrench into Sinister's plan. So I love Destiny so fucking much. I just, I just want to say, guys, I love Destiny. (laughs) She (laughs) looks at him and is like, no. (laughs) He's like, crap, 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 gravity crap. Welcome back to X's for Podcast, Mi Gente. It's Arturo, and I'm here with some friends to discuss Immortal X-Men number one. Hi, I'm Broadway, and I fully support Celine unionizing the externals. You can find me on Twitter at BWAY3RD. That's B-W-A-Y-3-R-D. Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Drewsifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hey guys, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at comic underscore canary. And we hope you survived this experience. Just like Sinister's love for Cyclops and his Cyclops cat, apparently. Yes, love this hairless, evil little cat with a visor. Live.
You know why he's got a hairless cat, right? Because he's the original Dr. Evil. Well, that, but also so he doesn't get hair on all his capes. True. Oh. Brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, that's the obvious choice. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, and I forgot to mention, Yatusabe, you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. This was a sinister tale, to be sure. Gillen took this tried and true classic X-Men villain and revised him in a way that was so fresh and a little bit twisted and Jonathan Hickman obviously loved it and ran the hell with it as have other great writers like Zeb Wells most recently over in Hellions. Destiny scares me. Ooh, Destiny. In like the best way and I know she scares Sinister too and because this was such a Sinister heavy story like seeing him actually flounder and seeing his inner monologue with that just it was so brilliant. The opening scene with Sinister and Irene is is awesome but once Mystique joins that's when it becomes like actually breathtaking like seeing these wonderful lesbians on panel in love you know I, I never get tired of it we waited for this for decades and now they are feeding us oh just beautiful I have been missing Sinister ever since Hellions ended so having this book be narrated by by him was absolutely a treat. That whole section with Destiny and Mystique and Sinister together at the end of World War One, that was just, it was such a great bit of story. Their designs during those few pages, I absolutely loved all of their outfits. It was just so good. Mystique's hat? Oh, I can't even deal. And, and Irene asks her, Raven, do you trust me? And Mystique says, if every part of this world succumb to dust the last thing remaining would be my trust in you what we have is immortal bitch i got chills i want someone to love me the way mystique loves and trusts destiny and i don't know if i've earned that i feel like destiny's earned her stripes but like no that sent chills down my spine this whole comics giving me everything that i look for in comics it's giving me the drama it's giving me the suspense it's giving me the humor like it just has everything that i am looking for in my comics it's good food that we are eating Gillen really knows his characters especially sinister what i love about the concept of sassy sinister is just that it's like it makes sense because this like 19th century weirdo with like who's like part-time vampire with like a cape is insane and like as a character design it's insane he calls himself mr sinister so like you have to have a little fun with it right it can't but then on the other end you've got a character like destiny who could be really campy but she's present she has gravitas while saying so little i mean the moment where sinister is describing her and he says destiny irene adler scientist seer sapphic looking right at me waiting and she's just like she's terrifying she's utterly terrifying in a way that like mystique or magneto are not and i think it's because we're so used to their presence whereas destiny is kind of a wild card like during that part you don't really get it when you're reading it through the first time because you don't know what's happening at the end so you just see destiny staring at you like the reader or like her sinister so it's like well she probably i don't think she knows but she 
can see something is up with Sinister. And as long as she is alive, his kind of plans are going to get like they can they have potential to get fucked up by her. Okay, one of my favorite lines in the whole book, when Destiny reads Sinister and says, after all these years, you've never learned how my powers actually work. I don't see the future. There is no the future. There is no destiny. Like that is such a hard line because like that is the nature of her power. She sees possibilities. Sometimes she sees something that will come to pass, but just as often she sees all the other possibilities, you know? So it's the fact that she takes the name destiny and that that's the way people perceive her is that she knows everything that will happen. That's like part of the gag of her whole power set. She's just, she's such a cool guy. I'm so fucking happy that she is back. Like all of Krakoa and the resurrection protocols and everything have been worth it just to bring Irene Adler back into the fold. God damn sinister surprise surprise has a secret lab you know secreted like i'm imagining somewhere within bar sinister or who knows maybe somewhere else clones galore sinister has been just fucking around with genes being more evil than you even imagined and you know he was doing evil shit well turns out he was doing much more evil shit and i you know hats off to him like sinister is not someone to look to for you know moral guidance or anything but when it comes to just like cam evil phenomenal villains sinister is diamond tier baby i think that's also what's off-putting about sassy sinister it's supposed to read like oh he's a clown and i'm like no but he's like he's still very sinister like he's this like next level geneticist who you never really see the world from his perspective so you never really know exactly what he's up to and so it is supposed to be kind of like lol sinister what a goofball but you know people like emma and destiny i mean Emma specifically at the end of Hellion, they're not playing with him in a way that, you know, Moira Note don't, like, don't trust him. And Charles and Eric bring him in and, you know, thank God for the women of the group, but, like, they keep him from blowing everything up. Speaking of scary folks on the council, can we get into the incandescent rage of Emma Frost and her newfound level of focus? Because my girl is not having it with any of these fools. We get into it with Magneto uh, saying that, you know, he he wants to retire to Araco, right? He's giving up his council seat. And you get everybody's reaction. Sinister plays up his, what? <laughs> and breaks the fourth wall and asks, you know narrates too much and then emma seizes the rain and she's like okay cool you're out of here and you have no say in your successor and hit it and he's like wait 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 then she goes no let's let's call it for a vote like emma is done with all y'all nonsense i really don't blame her after learning all the secrets that she's learned yeah i don't blame her for wanting to have more control over what's actually happening in the quiet cast at this point agreed like emma is just over useless men to quote sinister and she doesn't trust anyone at this point she doesn't trust magneto she uh, thinks it's part of another scheme and personally i'm of the mindset get rid of charles too let the husbands just go retire together they're useless anyway their plans don't work so bye <laughs> also it, sinister proves emma's point in inferno she says that emma's moira's power is to un 
annihilate them and their reality. And that is exactly, I know this is spoiler alert, but that's exactly what Sinister has been doing, right? And having somebody like Moira running around with only like Charles and Eric to possibly supervise, like is dangerous. And that's why it's so terrifying that Sinister has his clones. I mean, as a scientist, I definitely agree. 10 is not a good enough experiment number. You need hundreds. And I really appreciate Sinister's scientific side. But having an entire army of nuclear bombs, especially with Sinister, who's so self-serving, like the implications are insane. This all makes me that much more. I really wish Deaths of Wolverine had gone just a little bit different. Back to the Quiet Council, we see quite the cast of characters come in for the interview. We got some representation from X-Corp in the way of Warren and God bless Monet for coming in and just saying like, I don't really want to do this, but if you're even thinking about giving it to Warren, give it to me instead, obviously. (laughs) I wasn't really a fan of their interactions in X-Corp, but that that interaction with her interview, it was perfect. Oh, we have a few war criminals coming in for the interview, because why not? Abigail Brand, welcome. Dr. Hank McCoy, complete with a PowerPoint presentation. And my sweet, sweet boy, who is sometimes employed, Vulcan. I love when he's out of bed and he's not drinking and like he showed up in a suit. He looks so cute. He looks so cute. (laughs) I'm so happy for him and I'm sorry that Storm's gonna have to probably kill him at some point in X-Men Red, but like I love that he's like, you know, trying new things. Gorgon also is kind of a weird choice to be put here after the last time we saw him. The whole point that his word bubble simply said me, I think was kind (laughs) of like a wink nod at the audience. Like, yeah, yeah, we know this character is still there. We don't know. Like nothing has been defined. You haven't missed anything. He's still a blank slate rock, literally. They've been hinting that he's been having progress, but we haven't actually seen it on page with the exception of. Yeah, there was that thing in the park with the ice cream like in uh, way of x yeah way of x i believe he will be part of the cast in in legion of x if i remember correctly which will be interesting like gorgon figuring himself out inside of legion's astral brain space i feel like that's not a great place to like reconnect with yourself if it's like all not real reality but you know good luck to him and you know bless exodus for seeing the candidates that came in for the interview and saying no ma'am none of this and going out to find the messiah hope summers i okay i love this about exodus like do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life even if you've been around since the 16th century this motherfucker is a committed zealot to the core he is a believer he's just looking for something to believe in one thing i wanted to say about hope being like a candidate for the council is it kind of makes perfect sense because way back in the in the day like when she was first introduced they all claim her as like this messiah and then she just like kind of never really did anything um and it kind of gives her more of an opportunity to be to become like this messiah that you know everyone calls her and especially now during like this Kreko era she has like she's a part of the five so that like kind of we're getting to put her in that place yeah the whole thing doesn't work without her right like the whole point is that it's not genosha because they can bring the mutants back and who is at the center of that is hope and i'm still they mentioned like mimic and sync potentially being able to like substitute for her but I'm still not sure that that would work because she does synchronization as well as power amplification mm-hmm. um, and mimicry 
So like I hope is really indispensable. And if she is the mutant messiah and was like trained by Cable, another former mutant messiah type, like she should be at the center of this thing. Especially if you know Hank and company are going to be doling out orders to them to you know what did he say? Uh, you know we make the order, you do the cooking, now yeah, cook. Like Hank. she has to be in the room. Um, yeah. And it's kind of crazy that they didn't. Like if I were Hope and they didn't let me on the council, and she does imply a threat, but it's like I she could overthrow this whole thing. Do you really want to say no to the most popular girl in school? Like it's literally that. Like she, the five have a following, and she speaks for the five. And I love that she like swung that around a little bit. As far as mimic and sync, mimic doesn't have the range in my opinion, but my boy sync I think could absolutely ultimately get to that level where he is the only other one that can do what what Hope does. But also someone else who thinks they are very deserving of a seat and honestly who are we to say no to Celine? Talking about campy ancient villains let's get like one of the first most immortal should have replaced Apocalypse. Her words I kind of agreed back when it happened. What did you guys think of, of Celine's case for the seat? Ooh, I understand where she's coming from. She does bring something to the table that none of the other candidates have provided and something that hasn't been on the council since Apocalypse left. But at the same time, it feels like right now there's no space for her just because of all of the political machinations that have been happening on Krakoa recently with Colossus being brought in to counter destiny. That Sinister is the only person, like we have confirmation that Sinister, aside from us, the readers, and Ben Percy, who's been writing this story, Sinister knows that Colossus is there as a plant, mm-hmm. a little puppet being played by Mikhail and his reality warper, mm-hmm. which was quite the revelation. And I think he's the only one who also knows about Brand working with Orcus. Yes! He dropped that too. Yes, you're absolutely right. Well, Insane. and he also, he also kind of hinted at knowing about Judgment Day. In- oh, yeah. Of course, Sinister is a busy gossip, honey. He knows all the tea. I freaking live for it. Yeah, you know what? Like, I think a, a good solution may have been, you know how, how Doug doesn't want to be on the council? How he and Krakoa kind of sit aside it? I think the five should similarly be positioned aside the council and hope could be like first among the five or whatever speaker of the five like anyways not the story we got that was what i was thinking too that it would work better if hope had that voice on the council but not as a seat because the five should be separate from the governing body yeah just like krakoa and doug are separate from the the governing body and similar to the x-men and like Scott and Jean intentionally severed themselves from the governing body. And it's a weird tension because you're like, they should have some authority on the happenings of the island in a way, like I feel like they need to have like hard power in the way that Krakoa and Doug don't. Mm -hmm. Like their power is far more subversive. But I also think that not tying them to the council and their foolishness, having that freedom of movement, because again, Hope was the one that brought Destiny back. Hope brought Gabby back. 
back against council rules. Like she has consistently been moving against them. And maybe that would change if she's on the council. But I also think that there's a utility in Celine based on her resume. And maybe the two of them work together. Maybe Celine is like her new godmother advisor lady, her like vampire godmother. But yeah, it's hard. I mean, the council has limited the number of seats. And so inherently, there's a scarcity problem, which I feel like, you know, is an inevitable problem of the council is like, are you all actually the, the best people to run Krakoa? And who is to say besides the fact that the founders appointed you? Like no one voted for them. Having Sinister on the governing body, even if everyone silently agrees that he's still a dirtbag who is not to be trusted and he is here for a purpose, it still speaks volumes to, you know, what, what this means for all of this, right? You can make a better case for like, oh, Magneto and Apocalypse, but you got Mystique, you got, you know, Sinister, like they've done some insane shit. I was actually going to kind of disagree with you guys a little bit. I really think that having part of the five on the council is really important because at the end of the day, Krakoa needs some type of government and overarching system. To go back to like Way of X, we literally have mutants banging and then abandoning babies. It's a mess out there right now and there needs to be some type of like rule of law going on and the five are such an important part of that where mutants no longer have the consequence of death we see that in this where hope like brings back it's an unnamed mutant they've brought back five mutants in an hour which is such a change from the beginning where we have people going welcome back and making a big deal about every time someone comes back alive now where it's just a mundane thing almost and with the lack of consequences things are going to get really hectic really quickly and if the consequences are mitigated by the five then the five should definitely have a voice in that governing body yeah especially if they are also able to influence how people come back i mean there's a whole point in x-force where hank is concerned about being resurrected and being altered specifically by hope because the five don't like the way he acts and like they have governance over that they could bring sinister back uh, totally different right they could just make him not the way he is so that like the people who are sort of metaphorically birthing the population of Krakoa aren't given the same level of status if hope went off the rails she could go Celine and turn everybody into scary like zombie mutants if she wanted to we get to a vote Irene surprises sinister she votes no when he thought she would vote yes he's saying crap 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 he flip-flops dot 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 hope is now the newest member of the quiet council celine says well you've made a decision now you have consequences and a giant you know creature rises by the external gate and starts wreaking havoc and and causing mayhem and sinister gets the hell out of there to go back to his little secret lab with his adorable creatures and we get the reveal of all reveals moira moira x1 x2 x3 x4 i i don't even know moira in abundance what did you guys think about this this was like the this is insane like sinister is saying basically don't get caught up in the mutants themselves look at the mutant power within their genes as a tool and do with that what you will and and this is what he's set up i'm totally like digging this from a scientific perspective i am 100 a mad scientist and seeing <laughs> like i know guys it's biology corner with evolution 
Evelyn again. But seeing him doing all this gene manipulation is just so cool and so unique. And I know it's awful and terrible and just bad, all around bad, but I can't help but to absolutely love it and want to do it myself. I know a lot of people are confused with how it works and like kind of the goings on of it. And I like I've seen a lot of people comparing it to like a save, like saving in a video game. Basically, you can play your video game and keep going. So you know what's going to happen. But then once you die, you go back to that save spot. So you know, like where everything is and where to avoid because you've already played it, but you're back to where you were. Right. Because like the, the danger of Moira's power is oh no, if she dies, then the timeline resets all the way back to when her mutant power activated or, or whatever, to the point of her birth. But the way Sinister has this all set up, he's basically activating the Moiras as needed and shooting them as needed. So it's like like saving in a video game, basically. Yeah? Is that... That's kind of how I understand That's exactly it. it. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's totally getting doing it specifically to get content for his gossip columns. It's not about her whole life. It's like, oh, okay, at 11, 12, we activated her gene, killed her, you know, a minute later, and then activated the new Moira and, you know, whatever. And here we are. It's 11, 11 again, or whatever the hell. I love that whatever gateway he's using is a diamond. Mm. Yes. That kind of like attention to detail and design on Lucas Vernick's part is fantastic. But also, you know, he says upload data to clone. And to me, that harkens back to the Psylocke daughter of it all, where it's like there's it's a mix of technology and I'm guessing weird, sinister brain stuff. Um, But it's not like he's uploading it like to to Charles and Cerebro or to like another telepath. I feel like it's probably the same technology he used to capture the uh, kind of mental imprint of, of Psylocke's daughter. I know we saw her destroyed, but it's sinister. The destiny of X is off to a very exciting start. I think the post-Hickman era, not to sound like a shill, but I think the post-Hickman era is looking beautiful and bright, and I am so excited to be sharing it with all y'all. Oh, 